have a special place in my heart for pastors with laryngitis. I was always in a position where that happened with, to me, I didn't have any choice, and it always made it worse. So uh, I, I'll just say, I think our pastor Smarty followed my advice to try to rest his voice as much as he could. So that's why I am opening the Word of God tonight, and uh, hopefully you're in John 17. It's an interesting portion of Scripture, and I wish that we'd have gone back and developed the context from the beginning of John 1, but we don't have the time to do that tonight. But as we enter John 17, we are entering sacred ground. We are privileged. We get to hear and listen in while the Lord Jesus Christ prays. And we need to understand that when we step into John 17, that that is what's taking place. A lot of people, you hear, they say, well, you know, the Lord's Prayer. Well, that's in Matthew 6, where, you know, our Father and all of this are in heaven. That, we need to understand, is the model prayer. That's the skeleton that Jesus Christ gave his disciples when they asked him, you know, how do we pray? He gave them an outline. And it's a great outline, and, and I trust that you, as you pray, you think about that outline and you fill it in with your particular request, but that's not a prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ would have needed to pray. He didn't have any debts that he needed to forgive or, or anything, so if he gave that as a model prayer. The Lord's Prayer, when we see him praying, is in John 17. And this prayer in John 17, he never invites his disciples to pray it. He doesn't say, okay guys, listen in, and then down the road when I'm done, here's how I want you to pray. No, he, he allowed them to listen in as he prayed to the Father. And as I thought about that, and, and as I was thinking about that from this morning till tonight, because I'm just going to be honest with you, I preached this same message this morning in Indianola, but as I thought about it this afternoon, the thought hit me. John was written after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I don't think any of the disciples were there, oh, he's praying, let's write down every word. So what you have here is God the Son praying to God the Father, giving us words that were inspired by God the Spirit. And God would know exactly what was said, so what we have here, I believe, is exactly what the Lord prayed to the Father. I don't know about you, but I find that interesting. And I think also it's evident that the Lord prayed this so he would be overheard by his disciples because they were there in this context. We've had the washing of the feet and we've had the departure of Judas and he's just teaching and answering questions from his disciples. And then in verse 17 we just see this time where he looks up to heaven and begins to pray. 
This prayer is prayed as Christ's earthly work comes to an end. Nothing remains for him to do. Everything that had been planned in eternity past had come about that needed to come about before he went to the cross. In those final few hours of the trials and everything, everything was completed. In fact, in verse 4, he says, I have accomplished the work you gave me to do. The Last Supper was over. The Lord had taught about his bread representing the body and the blood, the, the cup representing his blood. He'd set that in place. And the chapter begins when Jesus had spoken these words. What words is that? You've got to go all the way back to probably chapter 13 and pick up that context. But that's the words that I believe are being addressed here. Looking back to all that he said, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and now as we come into John 17. And if you look back, some of the things he has discussed with them is he had told them in John 14, 8 and 9 who he was. Remember Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said unto him, Have I been with you so long and yet you don't know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And how can you say, show us the Father? So he had taught them, you need to understand who I am. He had told them that he was about to leave and, and, and why he was about to go. In John 14, 2, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. The Lord Jesus let them know, even though I'm going to be gone and I'm going back to heaven, I'm still going to hear you. John 14, 13, and 14. Whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. He hears us when we pray. He's telling them that. He told them that he loved them in John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. He told them of the certainty of his return. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He even told them that he was going to send someone to occupy, to not, I don't want to use the word replace, but I guess that's as good as word to understand as any, a replacement, another comforter, someone identical to him in essence and in nature, to be with us. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter to be with you forever. And he's taught them all this. He's laying all this out. He had told them about their union with him as he talked about the vine and the branches and, and what a great portion of scripture that is to study. And at the end of John 16, he tells them about the legacy that he wants to leave for them. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He also gave them in these chapters some words of warning. He told them, be aware, the world's going to hate you because the world hated me. And it's going to hate you. And the world's going to persecute you. And as we think about all that teaching that he's given them before this moment, as we step into John 17, he even tells us why he did it. 
John 15, 11, he, he gave them these words that his joy might be in you and that our joy may be full. In John 16, 1, these things have I spoken unto you to keep you from falling away. John 16, 33, these things have I spoken unto you that you might have peace. And having then given those to whom he loved from the beginning all the comfort and all the instruction and all the encouragement and all the warning, having expressed to them his, his love at the end of all that teaching, he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he begins to pray. That's the context as we step in to John 17. And those weary eyes, as he looked up to heaven, he simply says, Father, the hour is come. We're not going to get very far in John 17, verses 1 through 8. In fact, we're not going to get out of verse 1. Because there are some things there that I, I think are worthy for us to draw our attention to. Two truths that we already find in John 17 as we see the Lord lift his eyes to heaven and begin to pray. We need to notice what we can about the prayer. It is clearly the prayer of the Lord Jesus for every believer. As you work your way through John 17, you are going to find many, many times that it is recorded, he's, or you are going to hear that he's praying for you and I. You ever thought about that? God prayed for you? The Lord Jesus Christ, as he is speaking to his Father, talks about us, those who would be his, those who are his bride, those who are the church, all of those who have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior between Pentecost and the rapture. He is praying for them. And if you're here tonight and you know Jesus as your personal Savior, you're included in this prayer. As the plan in eternity past, set in eternity past, was about to unfold, the Lord asked his Father for favor upon his people. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm a little blown away by that. Here he is knowing what he's going to face, the trials and the cross and the agony and the bearing of the sin, and he's praying to his Father, and he's praying about you and I. He's concerned about us. And he's asking his Father to bestow his grace and his blessing and his favor on us. And I don't know about you, but I learned something about prayer really quick is that it's always about others. That needs to be the focus of our prayer. And the second thing that I see here about prayer is that God gives us promises in order to entice us to pray. I mean, how many times do we go to prayer and we pray for something that God has already promised he would do if we just understand it and recognize it? I don't know about you, but maybe you've had someone come to you and ask, you know, boy, I need you to pray for me. I, I, you know, and of course, we're willing to do that. 
But how many times has that request to pray for them been followed by a statement something like this, you know, I have tried everything else, and I just want you to pray for me. And if I wasn't guilty of that, my response would be, well, why did you just now get about to praying about it? Why not start there? But that's not our nature. But we see the Lord Jesus Christ, he's asking the Father. And the Lord here, I think, sets an example for us in praying about how we are to pray. And we need to ask ourselves, when you sit down to pray, are your prayers self-focused or other-focused? I mean, every Sunday morning in Sunday school class, every Wednesday night when we come, every Sunday morning and Sunday night, you're given things about other people to pray for. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands tonight. How many of you remember those and pray for those others during the week? I hope you do. But we see right away the Lord Jesus Christ is not praying for himself or about himself or about what he was about to face. He was concerned for us. And the Lord Jesus here, as he begins this prayer, as you read John 17, you're going to find that it's praying to the Father about us and for us. And in this context, I mean, even in everything that had happened in the immediate context of John 17, you had the betrayal confirmed. You had Thomas not understanding who he was and confusion among the disciples. Even in the midst of all of that, he prayed for us and was concerned and focused on us. So we see the prayer that he made, but also notice the argument that he uses as he enters into the prayer, and there's two of them. And they're very short, but I think they're very important. And the first one is the first word he utters after he lifts his eyes to heaven, and that's Father. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty important thing to be called. Father. That address gains you attention and access that those who can't come to you as in a relationship of a father to a child don't get. But he was able to lift his eyes towards heaven and address his heavenly father as father. In teaching his disciples to pray, what is that first line? Our father who is in heaven. I think sometimes we forget to whom it is we're praying. I mean, I I talked to the man upstairs Really, I didn't think you lived in a in a two bedroom apartment, or uh, you know, you had an apartment. You know, and no, we're talking to our heavenly Father. We have the same standing as the Lord Jesus Christ because my Bible tells me I'm a co heir. 
and I can address God and I can come into His presence and I can lift my eyes just like Jesus did and I can call on Him as my Father. And I think we lose the awesomeness of that many times as we pray. I know I do. And I think just understanding in whose presence we are and to whom we are talking, if we really grasp that, it would radically change the way we pray. A lot of the things that we do in our prayer time would be seen pretty unimportant. When you go to pray, remember whose presence you're entering. You're entering the Creator, God of the universe, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom He prayed, and we can come and have the same standing before Him as adopted children, as co-heirs with Christ. And that's the way He begins His prayer. I like what one author says, if you have children, you understand that there is no greater address than Father. No matter what accolades you may have earned or how many letters you have after your name, Father will always get your attention. A father will always direct his ear towards the direction of the call of that name. I like that. And that's what the Lord Jesus is doing here. Father unlocks the door to God's assets and to what we have available to us. In fact, in Matthew 6, as he was explaining some of the things about how to pray, the Lord Jesus told him, Your Heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. He already knows your needs. And how many times do we forget that? In in Luke, as the Lord is teaching, he teaches, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We have that available to us because we can come and address God as believers, as our Father. We don't need to ask anyone else as a child of God. We don't need to go through anyone else, and I'm thankful for that. And I'll just leave this for you to do, but as you read sometime John 17, just notice how many times that address appears. Father, Father, Father. That's the first argument Jesus makes. I'm talking to my Father. And I understand who He is. And those that he's given me, you can address him in the same way and have the same expectations. The second argument he makes in his prayer is, the hour is come. Father, the hour is come. Many hours 
hours of time had passed since time began. This plan that is about to unfold was put into place before the beginning of time in eternity past. And just think of how many hours of time had passed between the beginning of creation and this very hour when the Lord Jesus Christ was done teaching his disciples and lift up his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour is come. It's time. The plan that we set in motion in eternity past is about to be fulfilled and come about. It's the hour upon which his own heart and the heart of his Father had been set. This was the time when in eternity past it was determined that the Lamb of God was going to lay down his life for our sin. That's the hour that is there. Father, the hour has come. That was the hour for which the Lord Jesus left the glories of heaven and was born in a babe in a manger. We're going to be celebrating Christmas season here fairly quickly and we're going to make much ado about that babe in the manger as we should because it led to this time, the hour that had come when Jesus was going to die on the cross for our sins. That's the hour that he's addressing. All of the promises of God rested on this hour. That's why Satan was so determined to try to derail this hour when he tempted Christ. And why Christ, in responding with the promises of Scripture and the truth of the Word of God, knew that this hour was an hour that was determined before him. This prayer was not a prayer that had as its purpose to move the heart of God. There was no need for that. It was just a prayer to remind all of us and remind those who are listening of the promises of God. It was to assure the heart of the prayer. Maybe just a little glimpse of the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ to be reinsured. Yes, this is the plan in eternity past. This is why I took on humanity. That hour is coming and I'm ready. I'm going to do it. I know it's been determined. I know it will glorify you. And that's what his whole life was about. The Lord is conversing with his heavenly Father about those who are his. As I thought about a title for this message, I, I, I entitled it God Praying. I mean, it sounds almost something we can't wrap our minds around. No, we pray to God. God doesn't pray. But here we have God praying. In John 17. 
And to whom does God pray? Well, God the Son prays to God the Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ is presenting himself to the Father in his role as mediator. The hour has come. It's time for me to mediate between your sinless perfection and as the sinlessly perfect God and man, I'm going to mediate between you and sinful human beings. And scripture tells us that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That was the hour that was come. Christ was ready to fulfill this final act. He understood it was time for him to die for sin. Father, the hour has come. There's one more phrase in that first verse. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Father, glorify your Son. That was the whole object of Christ's life was to glorify the Father. I mean, how many times throughout his teaching do we see phrases like, my will is to do the will of the Father. My food is to, is to do the will of my Father. My role is to glorify the Father. I'm here to do what the Father sent me to do. And he is reminding himself of that and presenting himself as the mediator between God and man to glorify the Father. And in glorifying the Father, he was going to show what the Father was like in his love. He was willing to take on the form of a servant according to the Father's plan. And in John 17, we find him praying for us many times, but here he does pray for himself. Father, glorify. Be glorified in what I'm doing. Glorify the Son. Father, I'm willing to become sin. I'm willing to pay the penalty by shedding my sinless blood. Take me back into your presence. Restore to me the position I had before I left heaven and came to earth. That, that's all that's involved in that. And that was the plan that was already in place in eternity past. And Jesus wasn't asking God anything that he was unwilling to do. He was just reminding and reassuring of the promise of God and the plan of God in eternity past that that's what was going to come about. Earlier in John chapter 12, remember Christ had prayed in verse 27 and 28, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause I came unto this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus wasn't asking God to do something he was unwilling to do. He was just, he was just repeating back, 
for his own sinless humanity reminder that that's the plan in eternity past. That was the promise. That was the plan. I'm going to glorify you in what I do. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm already, I mean, there's already, I have so many questions that I can't answer. Is I even, you know, we haven't even worked through one full sentence yet of this prayer, but so many deep theological truths and, and evidences about God and His plan and His, and the Son's role in it and all that we did. I think if we could truly understand the nature and character and consequences of sin, we would understand better this exchange between the Father and Son. If we could understand the love of the Father for sinners, I mean, we quote John 3.16, you know, for God said, I love the world, he gave his only God, so I'm going to go on and go on. But we don't have any idea of what that love really is all about. The, mag- the magnitude, the eternal magnitude of that love that Jesus Christ was willing to do. And then we understand what happened is God the Father placed the sin of all mankind on His Son. And I think of those words of Christ from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God the Father turned His back on God the Son and allowed Him to pay the penalty of sin. That's what's involved in this little exchange, this little prayer. And I think if we could understand that, we would have some idea about the glory that he was talking about here. And if you fully understand it, I will be happy to sit at your feet and learn all about it because I don't. I mean, even going back into the Old Testament, we see hints of this happening in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, uh, verses 1 and verse 6 and 8. We, we, we find Isaiah writing these words. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring judgment to the Gentiles. I, the Lord, have called you Righteous, and I will hold your hand, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Father, glorify me. The hour is come. And the Lord Jesus saw finishing his work as glorifying the Father. And if I haven't made it clear enough tonight, what was that work? Fully paying the price for sin. In the book of Hebrew, pastor is one day going to get to chapter 10. And he's going to talk to you about how Christ was the perfect sacrifice because it's no longer the blood of goats and sheep which temporarily covers sin. 
but it was Jesus Christ's sacrifice once for all eternity according to the plan of God. He did it, and then he was able to sit down at the right hand of God, his role and his job completed. Sacrifice for sin paid. No more need for sacrifices. Christ's death destroyed the works of the devil. He died to rise again. There we see the evidence that the Father was indeed pleased with his action and that it was complete and that he went home to be with him to take a seat again at the right hand of God the Father where he is now controlling all of the universe as he did before. And now he has an additional role and that is he is interceding for you and I as our advocate. Every time Satan comes in the presence of God and says, you know, that my crooked God, he blew it again. uh, The Lord Jesus Christ stands and says his nails on his hands and says, hey, it's already paid for. Find something else. That's what's involved in this little statement, this beginning of this prayer. We have salvation because God glorified the Son and the Son was glorified in what he did. Again, I like what one author said. We have salvation available to us because God answered this prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ as he prayed in John 17. And there's more praying to be done, but I don't know about you, but I can't stuff any more in tonight. I've got enough to think about. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of sitting in a prayer that the Lord Jesus on his earthly time prayed to you. We know these words because the Holy Spirit as he inspired John had John write exactly what these words were. Father, may it cause us to Examine again how we pray and what we pray for. May it bring to us a greater understanding of the presence in whom we come and who we are addressing our prayers to, that not because of any merit of our own, but because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross, that paid the penalty for our sin, you have declared us as joint heirs with Jesus. And Father, as adopted sons, we can come into your presence and we can cry, Father. It's my prayer as we look at these words that we understand what our salvation cost the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the love of God in it as this was a plan that was put in place in in eternity past. And now here, the hour was come 
for it to be fulfilled and we know the rest of the story. We are looking back at the cross and what was done there in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit and inspiration of the Scripture, we understand that that's a salvation for us and we understand how to accept and receive and have it applied to our lives. Father, it's my prayer that each and every one here this evening understands the price that was paid because of our sin. And that they have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ that allows them to address you as Father. And again, just remind us, it's not because of what we have done or who we are. It's because of who Christ is and what he's done. Father, help us as we think about and meditate upon these three phrases. That you may be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.